Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, also streaming on Arut Sheva, IsraelNationalRadio.com. And we are going to do a little pivot this week, uh, not because politics isn't interesting and not because there isn't like a ton going on within the presidential race. Uh, there was a Democratic debate. There has been some movement or, I guess, some filtering or winnowing of the Republican field. And we have the extraordinarily unusual situation here in New York of two legislative leaders, both on trial for with federal allegations of corruption against them, both in the same time and in the same courthouse. So it's quite extraordinary. However, as everybody knows, and there's no no secret here, we have had a, I think, pretty momentous uh, terrorist attack in Paris, in the City of Lights, over the weekend. Uh, it was just quite incredible. Actually, it happened Friday night, as many people in New York uh, were bringing in Chavez. And we didn't really, people woke up and came, to, came uh, back to the news Saturday night and just really couldn't believe what happened. I thought it was just unbelievable, uh, the incredible coordination of it, the incredible damage, and it could have been actually so much worse. So I wanted to invite an expert uh, on terrorism, uh, national security law, as well as the faculty director of the Center on Law and Security at the NYU, that's New York University School of Law, Professor Samuel Raskoff. Welcome to SPIN class. My pleasure to be with you, Michael. So, Professor Raskoff, Samuel, uh, let's just take something for the top. I, I've, I've heard and read some of your lectures. Uh, what is terrorism and combating terrorism? Uh, I should also add that you had held senior positions in the New York City Police Department as well, so you're very familiar with New York. But let's just focus on Paris for a second. What makes terrorism and this type of terrorism so difficult to combat? Why are governments, then we have an ability to project power and the Western government uh, all around the world, but somehow we, we fail at, at some of these even large-scale terror attacks in major urban areas? Well, I think probably more than anything else, what we're looking at, thinking very strategically about the threat and the nature of the threat nowadays, is the emergence of a kind of asymmetric warfare where small groups of people, even individuals acting alone in some cases, are massively empowered um, to take the sorts of action we saw over the weekend to very gruesome effect and with the capacity, in effect, to shut down cities and to do strategic harm potentially uh, to countries and even to global um, multi-country uh, jurisdictions like the European Union. So a couple of kids um, who receive training or communicate with ISIS headquarters, and we don't yet know how much communication there was, how much direction there was in this particular plot, uh, have an extraordinary ability nowadays to affect strategic outcomes. That's what's different, and that's what's a kind of game changer in, you know, 2015. So if you don't mind for a second, just putting it in a layman's term, right, define what asymmetric warfare is. I have an idea about what it might be, but what, what, is, what does it really mean? Uh, does it mean that you know, we're so powerful, but at the same time, a, a guy with a gun has, you know, anybody has just the ability to kind of uh, to sneak in? I mean, what is asymmetric warfare? Well, I guess most fundamentally it means uh, the kind of warfare where the sides don't enjoy the same fundamental structure, I would put it that way. 
So many of our legal architectures of warfare, many of our strategic postulates about how war works and how security is necessarily obtained depend upon uh, an adversary or a system in which the adversary more or less reflects our own national structure um, and our own capacities more or less. Um, but I would say beginning uh, with 9-11, this obviously did not begin this weekend in Paris, um, we've had to adjust our thinking and to try to take a massive national security apparatus like the United States military and all of our security agencies that surround it and complement it and direct all of that considerable power um, at looking for singletons or looking for members of relatively small groups who are increasingly, we saw this over the weekend, um, immersed or enmeshed in ordinary life in our own cities. Uh, that's what makes this kind of threat so challenging. Um, it defies the way that we've organized our national security as a country for hundreds of years, and it causes us to have to reorganize our thinking, reorganize in some cases our legal architecture for how war is prosecuted. So I th think what you might be saying is that we are not structurally prepared to deal with this type with is it with with the homegrown uh, actors or is it with immigrants? I mean, what what is it? Is it different in Europe versus different in the United States? I'd like to you know get into contrasting that. But but what is it that it's so difficult? It's the lack of intelligence. Is it a lack of money? Is it a lack of budget? What 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 are we lacking here that we can't prevent? I mean, this was a pretty well coordinated attack. Right? I mean, they, they, it was in multiple locations. They were well-armed. It seems they were well-coordinated, and it was definitely intended to inflict massive casualties, uh, you know, similar to 9-11. I mean, very well-coordinated, obviously months of planning, correct? Um, certainly significant planning, significant coordination. How much top-down direction is one of the questions that remains unanswered about this plot, and frankly, it also remains a kind of unanswered question about the nature of ISIS itself, um, whether it's the sort of organization that motivates individuals who are operating either on their own or with only a loose connection to call it headquarters, for lack of a better term, um, or whether it's the kind of organization that issues top-down directives and, in that sense, can be said to have directed or organized or brought off this plot. So a lot of that remains to be seen. Um, and filled in over the next couple of days here. Um, but I think, broadly speaking, just returning to, this, returning to this very general discussion we're having about the nature of asymmetric warfare, the nature of counterterrorism as prosecuted by Western democracies nowadays, part of it, what makes it challenging is the fact that it's a matter of structure, it's a matter of massive armies and intelligence communities looking to target individuals. Now, we've seen the United States develop some capacity in that regard over the last decade, decade and a half, witness our drone program, which essentially amounts to a way of leveraging off of our technological advantages and our intelligence advantages to take out individual or small groups of, of terrorists overseas in places like Pakistan or like Yemen. So we've changed a lot in terms of our ability over the last 10 years to be able to focus all of this national power at individuals in a very targeted fashion, and I think that's probably the singular achievement of American national security over the last kind of 10 or 15 years, to be able to reorganize and to direct its considerable resources in this much more targeted and pinpoint fashion. Um, but when it comes to domestic scenarios, either here in the United States, we saw this 
in respect to the Boston Marathon situation or in a place like Paris um, dealing with a situation that it now has on its hands. Uh, the situation is a lot more complicated, a lot more complicated because the legal framework in which authorities operate differs, and it's more complicated because, uh, frankly, whenever you're fighting the fight on your own turf, um, the nature of the fight inevitably changes um, for legal reasons, but, but probably also for, for cultural reasons and also obviously for organizational reasons. We don't deploy the military. We don't deploy the CIA domestically. So we're dealing with different actors um, constrained differently and looking at the threat through a different lens. So this is all fascinating. We're talking to Samuel Raskoff, a professor of law uh, and terrorism and homeland security, national security law, faculty director of the Center on Law and Security at NYU Law School, uh, former official in the New York City Police Department, as well as uh, other posts uh, and has spent uh, quite a bit of time overseas. Uh, we, we have this perception, uh, Professor, that the Europeans are soft on terrorism. And I, I don't know that that is, or they're soft on Islamic fundamentalism, Islamic radicalism, whatever it is. Uh, I, I don't know that that's actually the case. Uh, you know, it seems that they, they that in certain countries, they're very aggressive with regard to, and France is kind of known as having a very robust uh, security or intelligence apparatus. Uh, but at the same time, I think a lot of people uh, feel that the Europeans might be soft. Is that the case? I mean, what is really the case? And can you contrast the European response to uh, or the European approach versus, and there's probably not one uniform European approach, to the American approach? And then perhaps if we, you know, if we can, get, we'll get into the Israeli approach. Great. These are great questions, and I'm very glad to be with you uh, discussing them. Um, I would say, as a matter of of organizing this part of the discussion. No, the Europeans are not soft, and I think it's a mistake on the part of American um, political types uh, sometimes to believe that whereas we have an aggressive, hawkish posture vis-a-vis -vis national security threats, quintessentially counterterrorism, that our European allies are typically um, more wishy-washy on these issues. Not at all, but it's true, and I think your question gets at this, they've tended to apply power differently and to employ different kinds of methodologies. If I had to generalize, and obviously this is a bit of a caricature, I would say that in the first post-9-11 decade, the United States prosecuted counterterrorism as war. It, in fact, started two land wars in Asia um, as a direct result of its counterterrorism efforts and as an extension of its counterterrorism efforts. Whereas in Europe, counterterrorism has principally been thought of as an intelligence issue to be dealt with, and I'm speaking here within Europe, um, by European spy agencies, which have extensive experience in this kind of domain. So I think of French domestic intelligence, German, I think of the British MI5 here. These are organizations that have longstanding expertise in monitoring, keeping tabs on, um, engaging in surveillance, whatever your preferred term is, of terrorists and would-be terrorists, and using that as, I would say, the paradigmatic response by the state to this kind of problem. It's subtler. Um, inevitably, it, if it's working properly, um, we don't necessarily know about it. That's in the nature of intelligence. Um, but to think that it somehow reflects a more muted response, I think, is to misunderstand the nature of national security, it's simply applying a different kind of methodology. And frankly, at least in the domestic setting, it's the right kind of methodology to be applying. Um, it needs to be more or less an intelligence matter, and the Europeans, 
if anything, have a lot to teach us on how to practice intelligence at the domestic level. Very interesting. And now, how would you how would we contrast, let's say, the Western Europe uh, approach uh, with Israel's approach to counterterror? And obviously, Israel is a very different situation uh, for a lot of reasons, and uh, at least in my mind. But perhaps you can go into it uh, because certainly, from from the perspective of our audience, Israel is and their approach to terrorism is is of incredible interest uh, to how and absolutely, obviously. Absolutely. Yeah, it's qualitatively different, I think, the terrorism uh, that Israel experiences, um, you know, almost on a daily basis versus some of these events, but perhaps not. Well, I think it is. Um, the volume is certainly uh, very different, and the scale of the threat is different. Uh, I was talking to a good friend the other day, a former very senior official government, who told me that in her view, it's Paris every day in Israel, and you could certainly understand how an Israeli who has lived through the current situation, but has lived through wave upon wave of terror over the last years and decades, um, can regard this as essentially part of normal life in Israel, if that, if that could, uh, if this could ever be described as normal. Um, Michael, if I drew the distinction earlier between an American approach to counterterrorism, which privileged war, especially war overseas, and the war could be large-scale war a la Afghanistan and Iraq, or it could be micro-war a la the use of drones, to target individuals or small groups in places like Waziristan or Yemen. And if I said that Europe, by contrast, has typically practiced counterterrorism through an intelligence modality, using their internal domestic services uh, to keep close tabs on plotters or would-be plotters, I would say Israel, and again, I'm speaking in general terms here, subject to all the qualifications that that implies, Israel is a kind of mashup between the two. So... Every once in a while, periodically, Israel wages what amounts to a counterterrorism war, as in the wars that it's fought over the last years in Gaza, or, frankly, in the south of Lebanon. These are wars that are aimed in the parlance of Israeli national security officials to maintain a restored deterrence vis-a-vis vis -a, -vis a kind of terrorist enemy, whether that enemy is Hamas or Hezbollah. At the same time, largely within Israel, um, Israel is fighting an intelligence-driven war in which its domestic service, the Shin Bet or the Shabak, plays an exceedingly prominent role. So Israel, Israeli counterterrorism, I would say, draws on aspects of both the American war paradigm, but at the same time also leverages heavily off of the European-style intelligence paradigm, and to very potent effect. It's been a very successful uh, combination from a counterterrorism standpoint, obviously, you know, we're not talking about this today, but, but in all counterterrorism conversations, we have to think about how counterterrorism is nested within larger strategic questions, larger political questions. Um, but as strictly at the operational level, I would say the Shabak over the years has proved to be a very uh, qualified um, expert counterterrorism force, um, certainly when combined with elements of the IDF and other security uh, components in Israel that participate. So it's a, a very formidable counterterrorism operation. So a question for you. I know time is short. I want to be very mindful of it. And this is an absolutely fascinating discussion because uh, I don't think people really dissect the, the nature or the threat and how the threat uh, has to, combating the threat really has to fall into existing paradigms, existing structures, because that's how, uh, that's how, uh, intelligence and army and uh, are, are kind of, um, 
you know, are, are, are structured. But let's just talk for a second about language. And I don't know. I know this is not necessarily your area of expertise, but uh, as far as, but I just want to know the importance because it matters so much from a political perspective. Uh, you know, a lot of people were struck by the it, the unwillingness of the Democratic candidates to call this Islamic. Uh, radicalism. They don't want to say it was Islamic. They said radical jihadis. I mean, people, they didn't want to call it uh, Islamic. Uh, President Obama has been very loath to, to put this as anything as, uh, as anything having to do with Islam, uh, specifically, or as far as that terminology. But, you know, uh, the president of France was very quick to say, you know, we are at war with Islamic states. Uh, you know, we are, you know, we're declaring war. And, you know, war, of course, has that now, now, different type of language. Um, you know, does that matter? Does any of this language used uh, from a public perspe- perspective matter uh, as far as how that, you know, how that changes the fight, uh, you know, in the perception? And does the public perception matter to any of the, the security apparatus uh, mm-hmm. as far as, uh, you know, what they're willing to tolerate within this, what society is willing to tolerate uh, in prosecuting this war? Oh, these are really uh, great questions. Again, look, when it comes to the nomenclature, the terminology of counterterrorism, I think it's very important. Um, I would note that the French president didn't say that he was declaring war on Islam or anything like that, but on the Islamic State. The Islamic State is the name of the organization comparable to al-Qaeda. So to me, that's more or less the same as President Obama saying, let's not call this a war on terror, let's call this a war on al-Qaeda and its affiliates. Um, but having said that, I think you're right to say that the current administration has preferred to employ a kind of circumlocution when talking about uh, radical Islam and its capacity to motivate violence. They tend to talk about violent extremism as a more all-encompassing category so as not to finger Islam as somehow being kind of culpable in the production of this violence. And I can understand from the standpoint of an American uh, politician or even an American a security official wanting to be very uh, precise and, in a sense, delicate about how terminology is used or potentially abused in this setting. Um, you know, this is a very complicated situation in which the violence clearly does emerge from a particular faith community, but from a very small sliver of that community that employs a theological or ideological outlook that is in some very deep tension with the balance of that community, the vast majority of that community. So how an American president or even security officials in this country talk about that, I think, needs to take into account sensitivity. But this is not a sensitivity in the sense of political correctness that's kind of causing us to not call something for what it is. I think this is just recognizing the immense complexity uh, of, of the situation. Um, you know, many of your listeners are members of a faith community and take their own faith very seriously. Uh, I think they can appreciate how um, a kind of metastatic form of religion, um, a pathological form of religion, um, that is motivated or that grows out of a particular aspect of their faith tradition um, should not be conflated or confused with the rest of the faith. But, but having said that, I think it's also a bit of a mistake um, thoroughly to try to separate radical Islam from Islam altogether. You sometimes hear officials talking in America almost in a hopeful or wishful sense, um, maintaining that this has nothing to do whatsoever with Islam and that Islam is a mainstream religion 
and that whatever is being practiced by members of ISIS has nothing to do with it. Well, I think that's an exaggeration also. And it looks like we lost that audio there, but I want to thank uh, Sam Raskoff, a professor at NYU Law School, expert in Homeland Security and counterterrorism for joining us. That very enlightening discussion and unfortunately quite troubling. You know, I think we're going to have to just uh, accept this new reality in, in many locales. And I have to say, fortunately, we have been, for the most part, spared 9-11 type attacks. I mean, it's obvious we haven't had any here in the United States. Uh, there have been elsewhere in the world. And fortunately, I, I would have to th feel very strongly that our security services, whether they be the FBI, Homeland Security, CIA, the NSA, are doing what needs to be done in order, to, and as well as local police departments, including the NYPD, are doing what needs to be done to prevent attacks here at home. And this is going to be, unfortunately, a larger discussion as, as we go on. And uh, it's just now starting, starting to dominate the political discourse, uh, particularly around the Republican approach to immigration. And that's uh, been the hot-button issue right now because you know Donald Trump has championed the illegal immigration now that the idea that Syrian refugees – or one Syrian refugee was amongst those who committed the uh, these heinous attacks in Paris. Well, that of course is creating this groundswell of fear and distrust, and governors writing to the president saying, "We don't want your Syrian refugees." Which, of course, now I don't want to make that direct correlation. I'm I'm generally personally. Uh, pro-immigration. I'm not certainly I think it's outlandish and insane to think we're going to deport 11 million people that, as Donald Trump says, I understand that we are a country of laws. I understand. But, you know, with everything, there's a tension. There's a tension that goes along with that. And to say that the United States is going to close its doors to, to refugees is troubling because we did that in the 1930s uh, to Jews. I'm not comparing Syrians to Jews. It's not it's not the same. But when you make these wholesale judgments, it's very, very troubling. And we have a, a very long waiting period to begin with now for refugees to come to this country. But even going further than that, uh, Trump has decided based on uh, the wave, uh, I think a populist wave that he's riding, that, well, we're going to have to go ahead and close the mosques. He's not, not even saying that any of these mosques are connected or some of the mosques or all that, but just close the mosque. We're going to have to do it. Um, we're going to have to close the mosques in order to combat this wave of terror. And uh, that's, well, that in of itself is troubling. But let's get, uh, let's get right down to some of the other factors that are going in. Uh, ben Carson, as we've taken this new focus on foreign affairs, this new focus on the Middle East, Ben Carson has had a bombshell dropped on him in the form of a New York Times article that has questioned where he gets his facts and where he gets his foreign policy briefings. One of his advisors, uh, a CIA vet for many years, has basically said that Ben Carson just talks to anybody and gets ideas into his head, like when he said the Chinese were in Syria, which kind of widely uh, discredited uh, statement that the Chinese are in Syria. Nobody really has pointed out to that. And his own advisors are kind of saying, well, he's not really doing his homework. It's tough to get him to focus on foreign policy. Maybe he doesn't get it. Maybe he just wants to focus on 
his great life story, his incredible narrative, uh, focus on healthcare. But he is certainly, when it comes to answering questions about foreign policy, uh, he's not butchering the questions that Trump did once, but Trump hasn't made mistakes since then. You know, when Trump famously called, couldn't identify the difference between Hamas and Hezbollah, as well as the Kurds and Al-Quds, uh, and General Soleimani of the Al-Quds force. And, uh, but Carson isn't quite butchering it to that point, but he just doesn't seem to be able to answer some very basic questions. So it's um, troubling. It's troubling. These are the guys at the top of the Republican ticket. And what's troubling on the Democratic side, of course, is that during their debates, the all three candidates left on the Democratic side, not one of them could say radical Islam. Not one of them could say the words, we are, we are at war with radical Islam. What's the problem? I mean, I would certainly be willing to say that there's such a thing as radical extremist Jews, uh, that there are people, the people who might go ahead and blow up uh, who, who at one point the Jewish underground, if you remember them, that they wanted to blow up the the Al-Aqsa Mosque or the ones who, who allegedly set fire to the family in Dura. Uh, I don't know if that's actually – if that was the right village, but I, you all know what I'm talking about. Those are extremists. Those are radicals. Uh, we, can, we can feel that people who have a very radical ideology – uh, but you know, somebody, everybody's afraid to say this word, radical Islam. I want to call them radical jihadi. Well, what is jihadi? Jihadi is an Islamic term. Uh, it's shocking that none of the three, including Hillary Clinton, the front runner, who is supposed to be the most moderate of the, of the three left, is unwilling to say those words, radical Islam. And of course, our president, just once again, uh, they're taking their cues from Obama, is unwilling, uh, you know, says ISIS is contained, and is just unwilling and unable to really confront the threat or assess the threat or give the rhetoric appropriate with the threat. And I think it's, it's kind of telling when France is kind of, well, yes, it's an it's a appropriate reaction to what happened. When France is going and running ahead and jumping ahead and saying, we're at war, this is a war, and we got to treat it as a war, and Obama's not willing to use that type of swagger. Maybe he feels it's too George W. Bush-esque. Maybe he's afraid of that. Maybe he's afraid of his always afraid of his left flank. But uh, very, very troubling lack of will from this president, from the presidency. And they just have messed up the Syria thing from the get go. This is just what you get when you absolutely cannot, cannot, cannot come to terms with a situation where America needs to project force and needs to project power. And this presidency, this administration seems unwilling, unable to do that uh, in any meaningful way. I want to just two more notes as we wrap up. Number one, I want to give a good shout out as we we are uh, post Veterans Day, uh, but a big shout out to New York City Councilman Eric Ulrich, who passed a who led the passing of a bill in the city council. New York City is establishing a Department of Veterans Affairs which is going to replace the mayor's office of Veterans Affairs. It's a big uh, expansion of concern for New York City veterans, uh, many of whom are homeless, many of whom need extra, uh, extra attention and extra services. And he championed this as a Republican. Remember, there are three Republicans out of 51 members of the city council. So those are some daunting odds to get anything passed. And through sheer will, Councilman Ulrich, who represents the Rockaways in southern Queens, has been able to pass a 
an expansion of veterans benefits. And the other thing I think to look at, you know, we're always looking at the next election, but looking past the presidential election to 2017, Mayor Bill de Blasio's rate approval rating amongst white voters is not just dropping, but it is in the 28%. It's quite incredible when you think about it, that amongst white voters, and this includes white liberals, this includes self-described liberals, 28% of white New Yorkers approve of Bill de Blasio, 59% now disapprove, according to a New York Times and Siena College poll. Only 9% say that the city is a better place to live. 51% say New York is now less safe, even as crime statistics reach historic lows. And it just uh, goes back to a quote that Rudy Giuliani used to say, it's the little things that aggravate. And I think that that was a good mantra for his administration. De Blasio should learn, you got to manage those little things. You got to manage those details. Don't always make everybody think all the time that your heart and your mind is elsewhere with national progressive issues. You're there to manage a city. And in the end, that's what the voters care about. Thanks for joining us here on Spin Class. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs here on the Nachum Siegel Network.